Welcome to the Neurosurgeon's Journey, part of the Library of Brain and Spine Group's Medical Student Neurosurgery Training Center and a collaboration with the AANS's Young Neurosurgeons Committee. I'm your co-host, Michael Kortz. I'm currently the Senior Student Director of Education Resources for MSNTC, and shortly we'll be joined by your other co-host, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. He is an Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the Baylor College of Medicine and is the current chair of the YNC. We're happy to have you with us as we look deeper into the rewarding life of a neurosurgeon and explore what it takes to get there. Welcome back to the Neurosurgeon's Journey. This is Mike. Accompanying me as always is Dr. Johnson. Dr. Johnson, how are you doing? Hey, Mike, how are you? I am doing very well. I'm excited to uh, talk with some stellar guests today. Today, we have the pleasure of having three guests, actually, who um, are, are exceptional people, which is reason enough to bring them on and have a conversation. But they all recently took major steps forward in their pursuit of becoming neurosurgeons, um, magic just a couple weeks ago into various programs. They navigated the pandemic with grace and now will be starting their residency this upcoming summer. So really who better to discuss the match process with, talk about sub-internships, maybe some application stuff and interviews. And we have a couple of guests who were recently on uh, just a few months ago prior to their interview. So we'll, we'll do a little contrast and compare um, as well. So our first guest is Molly Farrell. Um, she is a fourth year student at Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. It's an incoming PGY1 neurosurgery resident at the University of Texas Health Sciences Center in San Antonio. Um, and she is also part of the fundraising committee for MSNTC, which um, drives everything we do. So Molly, thank you so much. And uh, it's an honor to have you on. Thanks for having me. Uh, second guest is Michael Rothbaum. Michael is currently a fourth year medical student at New York Medical College. Uh, and is one of our fantastic senior directors of education programs for MSNTC. He'll be taking the old Oregon Trail from New York all the way to the West Coast at an Oregon Health Sciences University, where he is excited to launch a career in pediatric neurosurgery and neurosurgical education. Michael, you got the best first name in the business. How's it going, man? Doing well. Good to be back. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, and our last guest is Saqib Huck. He's a fourth-year medical student at Johns Hopkins University and is an outgoing Michigan fellow on the Young Neurosurgeons Committee. He will begin neurosurgery residency at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center this July. Saqib, thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So congratulations to all three of you. It's um, quite an honor to have you guys on and talk about your experience. Uh, and I know you are having some uh, post-match, hopefully enjoying your post-match uh, session here before residency. So we'll try to try to get you back to back to that. But to start, Dr. Johnson, um, I think it'd be great to contrast uh, this last year's application challenges um, with previous years. Give us some context to why what they just did was uh, so impressive. I would like to say that there is a part one to this episode where Michael and Saqib talk about their path through sub eyes uh, and to some degree, I think through inter through interviews. But we wanted to follow up with them about what happened um, after the match and get their kind of overall thoughts of how the process went um, and things they learned and things they could do better. So if you want to hear kind of the, the introduction to some of this, then part one may be for you. Uh, in general, for those that don't know, neurosurgery is a field that you um, go through interviews and you have a, um, a match through a computer system that places you at the programs after you interview and rank other pro the programs you liked 
uh, and the places you interviewed rank the applicants they like, and there's a match. So that's kind of what we're talking about when it comes to match in case you, in case you're unfamiliar this year, neurosurgery had a number of challenges with the pandemic related to the match as, as Michael alluded to. And just an overview of those is that about the time of year where people started organizing, uh, and their sub internships where you travel to other programs, uh, you're one at your home program, typically, and then sub internships at other programs, to rotate on neurosurgery service, to see that service, and also to get letters of recommendation from those services that go into your application packet, um, the pandemic hit. So uh, there had to be a very rapid reorganization of how this was going to work this year. Thankfully, there was quick action uh, kind of by the organized neurosurgery and all the various programs, program coordinators, residency program directors, to um, kind of we the, the ultimate Solution was to limit away rotations as they just weren't going to happen due to the pandemic. So away sub-eyes were out and you had to do two um, home sub-eyes at your home institution was the plan. So instead of being able to do the typical rotating away, people were only able to do sub-eyes at their own place and their own home residency program. Second issue was that uh, there was no travel for in-person interviews, which provided a fair amount of interesting virtual interviews and uh associated, I'm sure, anxiety, we can ask the, the people who matched, uh, about not being able to actually go see and meet the people in person and see the campus and see the city where they may have, you know, be, be living for the next seven years. And, and then after this interview session, the rank lists were submitted and people matched in the, in the typical manner, uh, which at this point was about a week ago, I believe. And now they have learned their matches and uh, we want to hear how the experience went from them. Great. So uh, thanks for giving that context, Dr. Johnson. So Molly, since we haven't had you on before, we always like to hear people's stories and we would love for you to provide us some context with, you know, why you went to, why you went into neurosurgery, give us a little bit about your background so that we can uh, engage with the story a little bit better. Yeah, of course. So, well, growing up, I did not really have being a physician on my radar. No one in my family is in healthcare, really. Um, definitely no physicians. And so I wasn't really, I didn't grow up wanting to be a neurosurgeon, I guess is what I'm getting at. And so I went kind of fast forward. I went to um, college and kind of got interested in, you know, healthcare and kind of wanted to learn more about it and did some shadowing. And, you know, during that time, I actually was told I should, you know, be a nurse and or a physician's assistant or an NP or something that I would want to have more time for my future family. And, you know, you know, things that, you know, kind of, um, you hear about saying, and I did experience that firsthand. So that was kind of disheartening as I was trying to figure out what I really wanted to do and what I wanted to pursue. I did end up getting a psychology degree. I was always really interested in um, how people form relationships with one another, the brain in a more abstract sense. And I really enjoyed, you know, the more neuroscience part of psychology. And I got um, involved in a neurocognitive research lab. Um, this was all at the University of Texas at Austin. And um, that kind of led into a position um, as a research coordinator for multiple traumatic brain injury studies and um, sports-related concussion studies after college. And I did that for a couple of years. And that's whenever I kind of really realized I wanted to be in healthcare. I wanted to be a physician. I was spending one-on-one -on -one time with patients that had suffered traumatic brain injuries um, throughout the first year after their injury and really realized what it meant to help people and um, be a part of their care. And so 
that really gave me a driving force and initiative going into medical school. And so everyone told me to keep an open mind getting into medical school. So that's what I did. And I was really thinking maybe neurology. I was always drawn to the neurosciences. And then during my third year, I had a general surgery rotation that I absolutely loved. I loved being in the OR. I loved the whole team atmosphere. I loved hanging out with the OR nurses, the scrub techs, anesthesia, just the whole team, um, as well as, you know, residents and physicians alike. And anatomy, I just could not really get passionate about the abdomen or gallbladders or anything of that sort. And so I was finding a real conflict of interest. I couldn't, <laughs> I just wasn't passionate about it or interested in it. Directly after that, I had the opportunity to rotate with a community or like a private practice surgeon um, near my school. My school doesn't have a residency program associated with it. So that was our kind of school's um, introduction to neurosurgery. If you were lucky enough to actually get that rotation, because only one student um, was able to rotate at a time. So luckily, I got that rotation and I just absolutely adored that entire month. It was kind of no turning back. I couldn't imagine doing anything else um, or pursuing anything else. And so after that rotation, I kind of just went all in, all my eggs in one basket. And that's kind of what brought me here. That is great. Thank you so much. Um, I know it's sometimes not very easy to uh, talk about your experience and, and just talk about yourself. So, but you just got done with interviews, so I'm sure you're used to it. So, and if you're interested in, in Michael and Sakib's stories, um, they also have great stories. And so uh, they, the previous episode that Dr. Johnson uh, is referring to, um, they, they elucidate that a little bit there as well. So Sakib, um, since we last talked, I would love for you to give your initial impressions just generally about the interview season and, you know, how you think things went with a lot of it being virtual. Yeah, happy to. It was definitely a whirlwind last few months here. I guess in terms of my thoughts, so the, the context here, um, generally speaking, so there's two parts to most interviews. Typically, there's a resident dinner, which is usually like a dinner or a social event with the residents, typically the night before the interview. Um, and then there's the interview day itself, which is usually several hours of, you know, one-on-one, two-on-one, three-on-one interviews, uh, typically with faculty and then some of the residents in the department. Uh, and I would argue that both of those are equally important. You know, in terms of how it was doing things virtually, I, I had a great time during the process. And I think the probably the biggest thing we missed out on this year by doing it virtually was not having that in-person resident dinner. Um, that, that's my, my personal opinion. I mean, I do think a lot of programs did a great job trying to recreate that event. Um, usually it was some sort of Zoom call with breakout rooms or some other activity. Uh, I know the applicants tried to make it fun too. I, I was usually sitting there with like a couple of drinks in my apartment trying to like normalize the whole thing. But, you know, there's just certain like group dynamics and intangible stuff that you just don't get as well in a virtual format that you can figure out within like 30 seconds of walking into a room uh, in real life. You know, it's like seeing who shows up. Do the residents seem to like each other? What's their body language? Do they actually know each other? Do they hang out outside the hospital? Just you know, seeing if you mesh, right? So, so that kind of stuff, I think we missed out on um, by not doing it virtually, but or by not doing it in person, sorry. Um, but on the upside, I actually thought the interview day itself went pretty smoothly. And, and personally, I thought it was pretty similar to what you would get 
in person. Um, and I, I think those, you know, those one-on-one, those small group conversations typically had the same flow uh, as an in-person conversation. And you, know, you could feel all people's demeanor and whatnot. I think the reality is just virtual programs tend to, or software tends to work better for smaller conversations. That's, you know, one-on-one or maybe a small group of people where one person's talking and it's just harder when it's a big group where you know, normally you'd have a bunch of side conversations going on, but instead it's like one person talking and a ton of people staring at their, you know, zoom screen. But, you know, I mean, all things considered, I felt like I was still able to get a decent sense for, you know, most places get a good gut feeling about, you know, sense of fit and uh, that kind of stuff. So Michael, do you, do you agree with Saqib? I mean, um, one thing you talked about was that, you know, the gut feeling, being able to engage with the residents in a, you know, fairly informal environment. And I know that, you know, everyone talks about fit um, and it's, it's kind of this arbitrary nebulous type thing that you really just, you, you know, it when you see it, but you don't really, it's hard to assess with any kind of objectivity. Um, and I'm curious, Michael, you know, your experience, if you felt the same way as Saqib, and, and maybe you can turn the page and start thinking about ways that, you know, things that programs did that stood out to you when, as you were going through the, the uh, process in terms of giving you the information you needed um, in the virtual environment. Yeah, um, I definitely agree with a lot of what Saqib said. I think you can pick up on quite a bit from uh, virtual interactions with residents and faculties, faculty members. I think it's a lot about looking at their body language while they're talking to you, seeing how they banter with each other and not just talk to the applicants. Uh, I loved when the faculty would actually banter with each other and kind of like pick on each other. You could tell that there was a very collegial and kind of lighthearted relationship between them as opposed to something a little bit more formal and intense. Um, one thing that for me, I kind of felt I missed out on is I think one of the reasons why I want to go to neurosurgery is because I like to approach things hands-on. So just physically being places and seeing places uh, helps me assimilate them a lot better as opposed to just a lot of Zoom screens that uh, if you didn't know where the residents were from, they all looked exactly the same. And when you're doing back-to-back days of interviews and multiple interviews on a day and you go from interview to a resident dinner, then another interview the next day, it all, all starts to blend together. But I think the smaller that the events were, the more intimate they were, the more uh, I was able to feel comfortable and open up with the residents, the more that they opened up uh, with us and the better the conversation just flowed via the virtual platforms that were used this season. So Molly, taking both of the Michael and Saqib said, do you think that, you know, what are some ways within, I mean, the virtual environment is, is a good place to start, but just in generally for students who are in their interview process, um, how, how, do, how, do, how do you stand out during the resident dinner as well as on an interview and um, assess some of these things? What are some things that in your experience you picked up on during when uh, your various interviews that you went on? Yeah, I think that, well, I think also like they've been talking, um, I noticed a trend as my interview season went on, there were more and more breakout rooms versus at the beginning where everyone was just in one big room and you had to basically take turns talking at these like pre-interview dinners in front of 20 people, whereas, you know, in a real life scenario, you would just be talking to the few people around you. (laughs) Um, So it was very awkward at first and took a lot of not so much courage, but, you know, you had to take your turn and speak out of turn and try to get in there and try to ask your question. And so it was kind of weird doing that. 
Um, but as the season went on, I think everyone realized the more intimate conversations, the smaller conversations were really more beneficial for everyone, residents included. I think residents were also felt awkward um, from what I gather. So I think that, you know, at that point you can more easily, so to speak, stand out. You can show your personality. Um, I felt so something that I really wanted to get out of resident we keep on talking I at least keep on talking about resident dinners but <laughs> the thing I really wanted to get out of the resident dinner was kind of like what is it really like living at x place what do you actually do like do you actually hang out with people or not and so I would ask you know what have y'all been doing during COVID outside of work and so people would say oh well you know we did some zoom um, movies or something like all together on zoom and stuff which is sounds just completely silly but I was like oh what movie do y'all watch so you can like you know build a relationship um that feels more um you know casual that you would have in a setting that is um at a restaurant or wherever a pre-interview style is so I think that um as the interview season went on people got better at you know really being able to let applicants' personalities shine rather than those big group settings where it's just not very conducive. You would hope that if they are doing Zoom movies, they would go to a movie theater. Because <laughs> that's right. I've done that a couple of times and it was kind of awkward. <laughs> but it shows, I mean, it shows effort to stay in touch and uh, so some camaraderie and that sort of thing. Um, I know a couple of places that did like wine and cheese night or something like that, which is, it's just phenomenal to me. Uh, so Dr. Johnson being on the other side of the, uh, the table or the zoom screen, how do you assess, you know, general fit of a, of a an applicant, um, especially in, in a virtual environment. And this is obviously all of this is for, for the 2022 folks who may um, be impacted by COVID as well in terms of the interview process. And, and I mean, even, even beyond um, there may be some things that stick with, stick with uh, the neurosurgery application process, but I'm just curious what your, your thoughts are being uh, an evaluator of potential applicants. Yeah, Michael, I think the, the bottom line is these interviews is the applicant pool that comes on an interview to a program are, are all relatively uniform. They're very qualified to be a resident. I think what you're really assessing at the interview is, is, is like fit. And that fit is the two-way street between the applicant and the program and the program and the applicant. So what you really just want to do is have like a conversation with someone and make sure they're seem reasonable. Someone you'd like to work with. Do you kind of get along with their temperament and vice versa? Um, it's really more of a, a little brief, get to know you, how you would feel working with this person. You know, there's always the rare outlier applicant who's says or does things that are not really particularly couth, you know, that, that you can, you can kind of pick out like, yeah, we probably don't you know, have that person in the program, but for the most part, everybody's very well, you know, very well qualified and, and, and very well fitted to, to do it, uh, to, to be a resident, of your program. It's just about the combination of their credentials, which everybody reads on the same day mixed with their personality. That's really just what it is from the perspective of someone interviewing applicants and from the, and really all, all, you know, you're getting a sense of, are they eloquent? Are they, can they support their ideas? Do they have a conversation, are conversations, you know, reasonable? Like you feel like they're going to be a good physician that can talk to patients and, you know, be a good representation of your program. And, and, that, and that's the majority of, of the goals of the interview. So I don't think there's anything specific you need to do to impress someone other than just be yourself, you know, try not to do anything that would be considered to be 
controversial and, um, and just see if they're a good fit for you and you're a good fit for them. So Doc, Dr. Zada, actually, I think he says um, he likes to use the interview as a, a way to assess whether or not, you know, him being the patient and see if, you know, mm -hmm. you're a patient walking into the room and see how you would interact as a potential patient. Yeah, demeanor. Yeah, yeah. Demeanor, you know, your, you know, the way you handle questions, all these things matter. Um, and, and it's an extrapolation that if you can do it in an interview setting, you can do it to, for a patient. And, you know, when you go on an interview for a job, then once you've graduated, then you're a representation of the program, et cetera. Right. So let's take a pragmatic step. Uh, so keep, we'll just go down the line. What is one uh, big to do and one big not to do um, applying for neurosurgery? And this is COVID or, or non-COVID related. I'd say the biggest to do is probably to seek out mentors in neurosurgery. I mean, these are, these are the people that'll, you know, teach you neurosurgery, get you plugged in uh, with resources and projects, you know, guide your interest and, and really help with your application. Um, so, you know, I'd say ideally that's probably some combination of, you know, neurosurgery faculty, uh, residents, if you're early on in med school, maybe it's other med students who are a couple of years ahead of you as well. Uh, those are just, you know, really important and really rewarding relationships, honestly, for, for this whole process. Biggest not to do's, it should go without saying, I mean, don't lie. Don't, you know, don't, uh, don't exaggerate anything on your application, especially, you know, with things like your research items or experiences you've had, just tell the truth and don't, don't stretch anything. And I'd say just don't, you know, be arrogant or, or rude. You know, it's a small world. So that kind of stuff travels quickly. Just be a a good human being. Be a good human being. Don't be a bad human being. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a good start. Uh, thanks, Saqib. Uh, Molly, I'd love to, you can repeat verbatim what Saqib says, or if you have something else that you think uh, is, uh, I know a lot of times it's, it's very common sense, but I think people either A, need to be reminded of these sorts of things, or B, um, it's just good to hear from someone who has validated it through their success. So Molly, do you have any big to-dos or not to-dos? Yeah, so uh, my to-do is pretty similar. Um, my to-do is um, network, virtually especially. Um, I felt like it was very, very important. It's also very important as um, someone coming from a medical school that doesn't have a residency program associated with it. So I took networking very seriously, and um, I think it's important also not to wait around for, um, you know, interview time, for application time. You know, you can start networking as soon as today, um, finding out more about neurosurgery as a specialty, finding out more, or if you're, you know, further down the line in your medical school training, finding out about specific programs and talking to residents in those programs. Um, I found that very, very helpful. And then keeping in contact with them as I went through the process um, and, you know, after I applied and after I interviewed and just keeping them up to date, I found that very helpful um, for my own learning, just for general mentorship, like um, to keep what's talking about. To not to do, I think being realistic of your own application and do not apply to too few of programs. <laughs> so, you know, as DO student, I 
applied very broadly because I knew that that might be a hurdle for some program and offering me an interview or even a position or anything like that. So I just wanted to make sure that I, you know, kind of covered all my bases, but even as, um, you know, MD applicants, the statistics really aren't super great there either. So I think applying broadly um, and being realistic on what programs you want to apply to is also a, a big, I guess that's a big to do to not to do is the apply to few of programs. I could have come up with a more eloquent way to, to frame this question. So sorry for all the to do's and not to do, to do, whatever. I'm, I'm actually going to expand on what you said because you uh, gave me this advice just recently, um, which I think is very wise. And that is to, uh, for any connection that you get, try to engage with someone down the line that they may know. And I, I think that's really, I think that's really good. Um, trying to learn more from the people in the field. And as, as you, uh, and as we talked about in this podcast, it's a very small field. So, uh, Michael, I know it's hard being last, but did you have anything? Uh, I was just going to put you on the hot seat. Um, I know it's hard being last, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I would say my big to-do is to advocate for yourself. And I think that kind of speaks to what Sakia and Molly have said and looking for mentors and networking, but also in just kind of looking for any opportunities that might be out there, whether it's early on as a medical student looking for a research opportunity and being bold and looking for something in a different place or that might not be in the field of interest that is, you know, or in the field that is most of interest to you, but that seems like a good opportunity to stand up for yourself. And to send an email if you want a, an interview at a program that might not have sent you one. You know, it never hurts to, uh, to shoot that email. You don't know what comes of it. So just to, to really be your own advocate because everyone in this pool is incredibly strong uh, and we all need to work together, but you also need to stand up for, for your own uh, best interests and goals. But then the flip side of that, my not to do is not to think that you're better than anyone else. Again, this pool is incredibly talented and inspirational. And at the end of the day, the hope is that we'll all be colleagues and to just really try to make friends throughout the application cycle and to rely on one another for information, especially in a virtual setting. Uh, and then ultimately to work together down the line to improve neurosurgery and leave it a field better than how we found it. After talking with you guys, I don't think I could ever think I'm better than <laughs> everyone else. So we'll take, uh, we'll kind of just go down the line. Michael, we'll start with you first because you were so gracious and going last, it's hard. So for sub I, since you guys only had one, this will apply for this year, but probably depending on if the SNS changes things, but, and then down the road, you know, we know how important sub I's are. Um, and I, I highly recommend people to go listen to the uh, episode of Chris Graffio and Joey Lindsay. Um, that was back in the fall. And they talk about the residents perspective of uh, sub I's, but now that you guys have matched, what are a couple things that you think are really important um, on a sub-I specifically? You can be pragmatic as like, you know, resources that you think are important, um, procedures to try to get familiar with before you start. Um, you know, even if it's like little things like go find the restrooms and stuff like that. What, what are the things that made your life easier that allowed you to excel on, on your limited opportunity? Yeah, I think the number one thing with the sub I is to be engaged at all times and really at all times. And I think there are two good examples of that. And I'll let Sahib and Molly speak to any other that they might think of. The first is to come prepared if you have a case to read up on it the night before. I think there are some awesome resources out there. I personally use Greenberg quite a lot. I also use uh, the Atlas and I'll make a plug for the MSNTC if there were ever videos uh, that were related to a procedure that I was going to be in the next day. I always watch those on my way to work as well, or listen to them in the car. Um, I think UCLA also had a really good podcast that I would listen to uh, on my drive to work and help prepare for the cases. 
And the other way I think, you know, to show that you're engaged is to really be proactive in whatever you're doing on the sub I. So try to think, you know, what your residents need before they even ask for it. So if you know that you're going to the OR and you have a little bit of downtime, get there early, you know, make sure that the images are up on the wall, make sure that everything that they need for positioning and prepping is already there, make sure that the lights are up over the table. It's those little things that make the resident's life a little bit easier once they get in there and they don't go unnoticed. They're very appreciated. Okay, I will do that when I'm on my sub by soon. Saqib, it's your turn. Lay it on us. Yeah, definitely echo Michael, uh, Michael there being engaged and proactive. I mean, that, that sums up you know, the vast majority of, of what you need to know, I think. I mean, for, for me, I think there's probably a lot of sort of institution-specific advice that you could get from people who have previously rotated somewhere that you're planning to rotate. But in terms of general things, I mean, my experience was that the sub-I was a lot more about sort of EQ, you know, like emotional intelligence than IQ. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a lot like your, you know, your regular med school clerkships, you know, have a, have a good attitude, uh, like we said, be engaged, be proactive, be humble. Uh, I think a big thing is just figuring out how to navigate your role on the team. Because, uh, you know, if you have a clearly defined role, great. But in most cases, you probably won't have a super well-defined role. The reality is the, the team doesn't really need you. So your job is to, you know, figure out how to be proactive, be a team player, you know, find ways to help the service, help your residents accomplish what they need to accomplish and, and make things run smoothly. So, you know, talk to the residents, former sub eyes about little things you can do that can help, you know, even if it's as simple as, you know, updating patient lists, pulling numbers, grabbing supplies, you know, talking to other services, things Michael mentioned. I mean, the, those sorts of things go a really long way. A couple, couple big don'ts. Uh, you'll, you'll probably be on with other sub eyes. You know, I, at no point, you know, those people are your team. You know, at no point should you be trying to, you know, outshine or, or outcompete other sub eyes, make people look bad. I mean, it, it's a team sport. You know, you really uh, succeed as a unit, you fail as a unit. So you just got to look out for each other, uh, help each other out. I mean, I, I personally thought it was a blast being on with, uh, with other sub eyes. I mean, we had so much fun together. Um, so, you know, I think, I know there's a lot of talk and concern about sort of standing out on a sub eye, but I, I don't think it, to me, it wasn't as much about standing out as it was just kind of, you know, letting your attitude, your work ethics sort of speak for itself and just getting along with people you know, having some situational awareness, uh, you know, being helpful where you can just, you know, kind of enjoying the process. I like that. I really do. Molly, let's take a, like a 45 degree left turn a little bit. And who are a couple of people early on in your sub I, um, as well as with really any uh, program maybe uh, that you did an interview with, or you're just talking to who should, who you should identify with and <clears throat> contact in order to, um, ultimately get letters of recommendation and how does that kind of, how does that process play out? Yeah. So for letters of recommendation at your sub I, you will probably want someone in leadership. So like the chair or the program director, um, definitely. So they, I mean, and everyone, that's no secret. Everyone knows that. So um, being able to spend time with, either one of those people that you think that you might want a letter of a recommendation for. Um, and even setting up a meeting with them, maybe like halfway through more or less. So they know you a little bit, but maybe you can um, say, you know, Hey, I would like kind of, I guess I approached it. Uh, it's a more formal way. I set up a meeting and I was like, 
I would like to request a letter of recommendation and also kind of like any updates of like how I can do better or how I am doing so far or things like that. So you can always improve and get that feedback. Nothing, just quick, not um, super long meeting, obviously, because <laughs> um, everyone's busy. And I think being prepared as well. Um, so I, you know, had my personal statement ready. I had my CV ready. I had all the documentation that you need, the ERAS letter, like number thing for them to submit the letter. This year, they had the standardized letters. So having that already with my name and all my numbers and stuff, and then they would just fill it out. So having everything prepared for them, I think is also very useful. And then as far as that probably won't be the only letter you get. So when I was trying to identify someone else that I would like a letter of recommendation from, I really just tried to gravitate towards the person that I felt most connected to as well. So someone that I had spent time in clinic um, was a great way to kind of spend some one-on-one time with an attending physician and they could, you know, have chats over lunch with me and really got to know me um, as a person better than, you know, just the OR where they're spending a lot of time teaching residents and busy with their own patients and things like that. So I think that if you have an opportunity to spend time in clinic, that's another kind of hidden gem, um, getting to know your letter writers. And yeah, I think that that's kind of my idea. It's, I think, better to have a letter writer that can really describe you as a person and write to you specifically than just kind of a general like, oh yeah, the resident said that they did well. So I'm going to write that they did well in the letter. So that's kind of how I approached it. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's awesome. So Dr. Johnson, we've talked about like building a story and a lot of this stuff is how you engage with the program. One thing that we haven't talked about um, very much is the personal statement. And I was wondering how neurosurgery programs, at least in your, even just you personally, but maybe more broadly, how do you, how does that um, viewed and what are some things that should be in there generally? Yeah. I mean, I think the personal statement is a really interesting thing. It's certainly a requirement as everyone knows, you know, having gone through the interview process from the faculty slash residents side of the table, as well as from the you know medical students side of the table, I, I feel like the personal statement is about 90% of them are, are kind of like neutral. Like you need to have a good one. People read it, but it doesn't make or break your application one way or the other. Now there's like a, there's like a small chance that you write a unusual letter that raises eyebrows. Um, I've only heard of that happening a handful of times. and I've never personally seen a letter that I thought was in, you know, not totally reasonable. So if, you, if something's in there that's very unusual, you know, it may raise some eyebrows. But there are some letters that are really outstanding that people do take note of and mention in rank meetings. The, the particulars of the people that usually have great letters is not necessarily anyone's fault that doesn't have a great one, but some people have really amazing stories. And we kind of mentioned on the podcast before, like grew up in an underprivileged third world country or something along these lines and just had this really story that we overcame all the odds to have great achievements. And at this point, you're, you know, you're in your twenties, right? It's like an amazing ascension and, and, and or you have tremendous accomplishments. Um, you know, I remember a lot of people that were unbelievable division one athletes or had gone to the highest levels of music, um, you know, classical music or otherwise um, through all the famous training schools in either Europe and New York or wherever um, that everybody paid a lot of attention to these, to these kind of letters. And these CV points, but in general, I think you just need to make 
a basic statement about why you want to do it. And I think that's really what, you, you know, suffices. Um, I don't think it makes you or breaks you unless, unless you have one of those kind of really unusual circumstances. So to conclude, I'd like to talk about your guys' personal experience a little bit. There are a couple things that are unique to all of you. And if you guys want to talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. So, uh, so Keith, we'll start with you. You can talk about the couples match thing. You can talk about anything else you think is interesting. Is there anything that you think is worthy of future applicants to know, whether it's personal to you or just in general? Uh, yeah, I'm happy to touch on couples matching. Um, that could probably be its own separate podcast or maybe reality TV show might be uh, more fitting. <laughs> We're uh, going to bring you on for like four or five more episodes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not, in real life. <laughs> not, not to go all Dr. Phil, probably the most important is, you know, make sure you're couples matching with the right person make sure you actually want a couples match. But I, uh, yeah, no, it, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I, my, uh, I couples matched my fiance was doing OB-GYN. Um, and we, you know, we had a blast. It, it was a lot of fun sort of, uh, you know, sharing that experience with her and, um, you know, debriefing everything, getting excited about things, just kind of having somebody going through that whole process with, um, but the reality is it definitely did add a lot of complexity to things. Um, I think, you know, just going into it, you, you know, that you're, you know, you're balancing two careers two typically two specialties, you know, sets of preferences, families, all those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is just communication. I mean, it sounds really cliche, but, you know, ha- having clear and open communication is so key throughout the whole thing. Uh, and, you know, in terms of, Logistics. I mean, we cast a pretty wide net. We applied to a lot of programs, you know, more so than uh, than some of our peers who were, you know, who weren't couples matching. Um, interviewed at, at a, a good number of them, and then ultimately, when we made our rank list, you um, you basically rank different permutations of each partner at various programs. So, like me at program A, her at program A, me at A, her at B, me at B, her at A, and so on and so forth down the list. Um, so we had a lot of permutations on our final rank list. There were a lot of programs that we both loved, um, and so that was very easy. But there were there were definitely situations where you know one of us was more excited about a program or about a region than the other was, and so you know it becomes a balancing act that you kind of have to navigate uh, as a couple. I mean, it's like anything in a relationship. I think the uh, you just got to go into it with the mindset that it's it's going to be a little more complex than it would be. But I think it's I would argue that's more fun at the same time. You just got to. I you know, just got to keep open lines of communication. That's the, the biggest piece of advice that I could give. Still engage, right? <laughs> so far, so good. But okay. All right. So yeah, far, so that's, good. that's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> well, congrats on, on that as well. I think that's, uh, <laughs> it's very encouraging. I know that that adds just a significant, I mean, just think a, a and B, B and A. I mean, that's sorry, almost too much for me. So um, congrats <laughs> to you guys for figuring all yeah. that out. Molly, how about you? Is there anything else that you'd want to close on in terms of your personal experience or, or more generally? Yeah, I think that, you know, without a home program, I guess I just want to say that it's possible <laughs> that you can do it. Um, you, I know it take it might take maybe a little more initiative to find those connections, but I mean, I think that in general, the advice is to make connections and find mentorship. The field is small and just like it is for any other student that does even have a home program, but um, you just might have to, you know, travel an extra city over to find that mentorship. So just making that little bit of extra effort, I think can go a long way. And I think, yeah, just the general advice would be to do your best 
it is enough. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it sometimes, but it will be enough um, to be nice and be a real person and really enjoy the process. Sub eyes are definitely very stressful. Um, it feels almost like a lot of mind games trying to be there, but not be there too much or, you know, things like that. But just being a real person, because that's at the end of the day, everyone, including, you know, you as an applicant, kind of assessing the program, you want to work with real people. So doing that and also being nice to everyone, not just the residents and not just the program director. I think that that also helped me not only or like enjoy the rotation as well, being nice to, you know, making friends with the OR staff. Um, a big, that was a big part of Subai as well. Um, and then, yeah, just networking, I guess, is kind of what I touched on. But that was a huge game changer for me. It's not only so they'll know you whenever their, your application comes across their desk or their computer screen, but it, you get to know them, too. And you find the fit, um, just like Dr. Johnson was saying, it's a two-way street. Great. That, that, is, that is phenomenal. Um, thank you so much for instilling some hope in everyone. I think it's people get so caught up in the, the rat race that it's a lot of times just expressing your, your love of the field and just getting to know, know it more. Michael would love to hear your, uh, your conclusion and anything else that you think is important for us to, to finish on. Yeah. I think my main takeaway from this process, uh, and it kind of became clear to me after match day as well is to really trust your gut I mentioned a program that was actually my last interview invite. I thought I had really reached the end of my interview season. I was uh, skiing in Vail and my phone was going off nonstop. And it was my mom calling and telling me that I had to a, had a schedule another interview. And I was pretty shocked at that point. You didn't ask me to come ski with you in Vail. <laughs> so, uh, we'll next, talk about this. We will talk about this. <laughs> I'll be eight years, but uh, the next one. <laughs> I'm just messing uh, and then, yeah, I'm, I'm moving across the country to, I've never even been to the Pacific Northwest. I, I've never been to Portland. I don't know anyone in Portland, but I got really great vibes from the program, from the faculty, from the residents. Uh, and it really seemed like a great fit in terms of my specifics interest within neurosurgery. And I made a bold move uh, based off just a gut feeling. And I'm pretty, pretty excited about where it's going to take me. So don't underestimate that, that gut feeling. There's a lot of planning and logistics that go into it, especially if you're doing something as a complicated as couples matching. But at the end of the day, you know, where you're going to build your home and career for the next seven years has to, has to just feel right. Not just think, seem right. I could, I could try to summarize all the wisdom that you guys have uh, instilled through the audio waves. Uh, but that, that would be hard because there's a little, been a lot. Dr. Johnson, is there anything else you'd want to summarize or conclude on? Probably more eloquently than I could do. Yeah, I mean, I thought everyone's comments were really outstanding. I, I've kind of been quiet because they've said they've just really not hit them on the head, everything that you need to say about this process. I, I do have actually one, one follow-up question for everyone. It's kind of along the lines of do's and don'ts, but I just wanted to hear just one final question about it, which is if you had to do this whole process over again, what is something you learned that you would do differently this time? I could echo uh, something Molly had said earlier about networking. I and mean, I think with this year doing things virtually, it, you know, in general, in this process, you have to be proactive, but doing it virtually, I think you have to be even more proactive. And uh, I think Molly's point was a really important one. I mean, I, I was probably a little more shy or hesitant early on to be sort of reaching out to programs to 
you know, have sort of offline conversations with residents and other people just kind of asking about their experiences. Like, you know, what's it like being a resident there? What's the culture like? Are you happy? Um, that sort of stuff. But I think I kind of became a little more, you know, a little more forward, a little more proactive about that stuff as the process went on. And those conversations ended up being really helpful and informative. I'm just kind of getting, you know, individual resident perspectives on places. So I'd say, you know, if I could do it again, I probably would have started that earlier and just been kind of less shy uh, about doing it early on. And, and also about, you know, reaching out to other, you know, your co-applicants. I mean, one of the, I, I was looking forward to having that sort of interview trail experience where, you know, you, you meet some of your like closest friends for, you know, lifelong friends through this process. And, you know, we probably didn't get that to the same extent virtually, but towards the end, I was just trying to like, you know, get to know people a little bit, have offline conversations and those sorts of things. So, uh, yeah, I probably would have just done all of that sooner if I if I could do it again. That's a good thought. I mean, I, I think the uh, I think the interview dinner pre you know pre interview dinner helps with those side conversations in a normal year. You know, so I think that's that's a good thought for if there's more virtual in our future for the interviews. The ulterior motive of this podcast, Keith, is to make friends. So <laughs> we, we, you guys, you guys are all best friends now, whether you like it or not. Michael or Molly, did do you guys have thoughts on what Dr. Johnson was curious about? I, I think a takeaway, I don't know if this is a do or don't, uh, but I think a takeaway that I have from, you know, going through the process is that, you know, you, you really go through the process as an individual and you have to really think about what's going to be best for you down the line and recognize that there's a, you're going to meet a lot of great people um, and have a lot of really great experiences, but at the end of the day, you're only going to end up at one place. And, you know, no one really owes you anything in this process and you don't really need to owe anyone anything in this process. You just have to be honest with yourself, honest with the people around you and navigate it with a, a lot of integrity and really think about what what's going to be best in the end because really anything can happen and kind of think about all the permutations of how you could be happy. Molly, back to you. Hello. Yes. <laughs> um, I think the reason that I'm having such a difficult time with this particular question is because I really approached the whole process like guns blazing. I was all in. I gave it everything. I did. It's not an outlandish thing for a like female DO applicant to not match. So I knew that that was a very real possibility. Me and my uh, fiance had many talks about what if this doesn't happen. So I really put everything on the table. I gave everything. I gave my whole self to this application process. So that's why I said, please don't make me do it again. <laughs> And I'm so, so grateful that it worked out. I'm so grateful that I really feel like I matched to a program that I'm going to really love and um, be, can't wait to be a part of. So I really don't know that I would change anything that I did because I tried to do it all. <laughs> no problem. Uh, I, I do have one question for you. You mentioned earlier that you had these kind of discouraging comments about, you know, you want a job, we spend more time with family, you know, we should be a nurse, all this. You know, it may be helpful for other you know, female applicants and even, you know, to some degree, 
DO female applicants, uh, that how did you kind of, what was your mindset about coping with those opinions um, that could be disheartening as you went through and you clearly persisted and, and were successful in matching? I was curious how, what your mindset was to obviously you had to take those inputs with grace, right? You know, <laughs> but, but, but also try not to internalize them too much and get discouraged. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, it's a very real, I guess, the whole family kind of thing and topic of conversations of family planning and things like that for female physicians as a whole um, is a big topic of conversation that is happening more and more. Um, I've noticed, especially as I've become more active on social media, <laughs> really because of the application season, I've um, become more active on like Twitter and things. But um I think that more so I've heard the comments um, like when I was in college and things and really thinking about going into, you know, medicine in general. I haven't quite heard as many comments now that I've been in uh, medical school. So that's been actually more encouraging. I feel like maybe the kind of entire school of thought is progressing and being more inclusive. Um, so I'm really optimistic about the future and that respect um, and being a female surgeon um, and really on, you know, the application process and interview process in itself. I, I mean, I think it's illegal to ask questions about that kind of nature of things, but I just really approached myself as any other kind of applicant. Um, and so I did take note of, um, you know, are there female residents? Are there female attendings? Are the female attendings in leadership positions? That was something that's really important to me just because it was initially hard for me to find female neurosurgery mentorship when I thought, like, felt interested in the field itself. And so that was something that was important to me um, when I was assessing programs, for sure. Um, just because I would like to, it's easier, you know, to see yourself um, in someone that kind of resembles you or might have same concerns as you in terms of, you know, family balancing it all, being a woman in medicine. So I think that I'm still trying to develop my own kind of path forward in that respect and talking to other females and higher up positions further down the line see how they've done things. And um, yeah, I think I'm really excited about the future, though. I think that in general, it's been a lot more optimistic than, you know, my past in like college, you know, but way back when. <laughs> that is great to hear. I was curious how your experience was. That's really, that's really awesome. I, I do think it's actually improved even since some of my co-residents were female. And I, I think they, they, they still heard a lot about it all the way through the process. And even as a, you know, residents, you know, are you the nurse and all these kinds of questions, even from patients and things like that. You may have, may have heard these things, but I appreciate your insights. I, I think it's, I think it's really great to have these conversations um, because we do have even undergrads that listen to this. I know we've had, we've had a few of them on, you know, that are interested in neurosurgery. So I think it's a great conversation to have. Uh, and congratulations on your engagement as well. Um, Michael, you're not engaged too, right? Like I'm not just like messing up all of our, <laughs> okay, maybe there's something wrong with the word, the, with the Michaels here. That's, that's probably what's going yeah, on here. You can put the word out to anyone who's listening to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, again, that's another ulterior motive. We really appreciate your guys' honesty, your congratulate you for, you know, matching and taking this uh, significant step forward. 
Our guests have been Molly Farrell, Saki Puck, and Michael Rothbaum. Thank you so much for coming on today. We look forward to publishing this episode. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, follow, and leave a comment in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio content. Make sure to follow MSNTC and the YNC on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our webpage at neurosurgerytraining.org slash TNJ, where you can find other episodes and links and resources related to today's conversation. Be sure to check out the YNC's webinar series and visit their webpage on AANS.org. If you have comments or ideas for episodes or would like to join us to talk about anything neurosurgery related, our email address is tnjpodcast at neurosurgerytraining.org. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, I'd like to thank Matt Rosenthal, one of our fantastic MSNTC volunteers, for helping with the editing and processing, and also thank all the fabulous people involved in this project. Have a great day, and we look forward to next time.